and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. This week, we are going to be talking about the new FX X-Men adaptation, Legion, a show that we are both very into. Gav is doing recaps on her site, The Daily Dot, and I have been screaming in emails to multiple people about it. <laughs> the same thing. If you are not watching, this is a very kind of surreal show set in the 70s about a telepathic telekinetic mutant who is the son of Professor X, which has not been revealed in the show yet, but it it has been revealed in every single interview that anyone has done about the show. So I feel like that's an acceptable thing to say to start off. Although I kind of wish they hadn't revealed it because it would be interesting to not know that, but yeah, it's so detached from like the X-Men. They don't bother to explain any of the canon. (laughs) It's very, very different from this, X-Men movies that have come out and also from Logan, which we talked about last week. It is very different from anything I have ever seen on television. It is a very, very weird show. The pilot is just bizarre. I was transfixed the entire time. (laughs) Basically, the setup is this guy, David Holler, who's played by Dan Stevens, who is in a mental institution for schizophrenia. And it transpires that he is in fact a mutant but he doesn't know this and um he is in the institution and also he's being interviewed by people from the government and it's sort of intercutting between different time periods and at the end he winds up sort of being broken out by these people who live in a compound and are sort of function as the x-men in this universe although that's not what they're called and then the show takes off from there but it's engaging with all of these kind of X-Men ideas and concepts in a very different way from the movies, which are just doing a kind of different thing. But this is more like the X-Men for grownups, I think. The ideas and the sort of way that it's being dealt with are really sophisticated and not explained. Like, there's no exposition, basically. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear the opinion of someone who watches this show with either no knowledge of the X-Men franchise or someone who wasn't aware that it was an X-Men thing, because I think it's fairly easy to understand the concept of someone with superpowers, which is completely clear in the show. And then he gets kind of broken out of this mental institution by this group of, I mean, what we know is they're mutant activists, but they don't really explain the concept of mutant rights and stuff, which is like the core thing in the X-Men franchise. And we're watching it and we're both obviously fans of the X-Men movies. So I'm kind of like, oh, this is like a really interesting perspective because one of the cool things about the X-Men concept is that you get like a variety of different viewpoints on this kind of allegorical political situation. So you have like different members of the X-Men and students at Professor X's school have different outlooks on the fact that they're a minority and the fact that they have superpowers and all that kind of stuff. And in this, you have the perspective character is this guy who basically has, he's completely apolitical, like he's not interested in anything. He's quite naive and he's basically more interested in figuring out his own mental health issues and hanging out with his girlfriend. And then the other characters who are mutants are clearly like hardcore militant separatist movement. But because a lot of it's from the perspective of this quite naive guy, we don't really get any kind of in-depth idea about what their actual politics are and what the politics are in the rest of the world. So we don't really know what the setting is. 
in like a well, really interesting way, like even time-wise. It looks kind of like the 60s, but it's set in the 70s, but they never specify the year. Yeah, it's deliberately... The design, I think, is very intelligent, and it it is deliberately the 70s, and I think pretty identifiably the 70s, but it does have this slightly 60s feel and also is done in a way that is... It's the 70s, but it's sort of loosely period. Like, they're kind of wearing clothes that are modern-ish. Like, they've gone halfway to period in a way that's clearly on purpose. It's not like they've fucked it up. It reminds me a little bit of Pushing Daisies, which is extremely retro, but it's set in the present day. So it's this slightly surreal, like heightened design, especially in the production design. The architecture of the sets and stuff is just so peculiar and stagey. Yeah. And so you have this sense of it taking place in this universe that doesn't really exist. Um, I mean, not that it's taking place in some weird alternate reality, but there's just something kind of off about the whole thing, which really works because even the dialogue is quite stylized and the whole thing feels sort of not quite right but that's what they're going for and i think the politics thing is really astute because i think to this point you know in the show's run it's really not very political at all except insofar as all art is political etc etc but compared to something like most of the x-men movies where they're having these big explicit conversations about ideology this, I think, is much more interested in psychology. And I think that that is a nice shift, although I expect they will deal with the political stuff at yeah. some point because I mean, it's also, in the background. Also, there's going to be like another really high-profile X-Men series launch next year, which is specifically going to be really about the politics. So yeah. that means they're covering such different topics. There's no danger of overlap. Well, right, exactly. There's no real reason why every X-Men thing has to be about that sort of polemical stuff not that it they can't really get away with not addressing it at all nor should they because of the nature of the story but they can go in other directions and i think explore different things that the movies haven't really tried to do to their detriment i think most of the films have been pretty narrowly about the same thing even if they've done a good job with that and this has largely been about this one guy's interior life to the point where they're literally walking around inside his head for much of the show to date. He winds up at this complex with these people and they tell him that like the only way that he's going to sort of fix himself and then later um, rescue his sister who gets taken by these government people is to do what is it, like, memory work? It's memory work. It's a real, I mean, it's a real thing. Like, everything they're doing in it is kind of real types of slightly dodgy therapy practices from the late 20th century. Like, a lot of it's sort of cult deprogramming stuff. So as soon as we got to the point where it's not explicitly, but he's kind of being indoctrinated into a cult, I'm like, yes, I love it. (laughs) I love love cult stories. (laughs) The therapy stuff they're doing, they all kind of go into his mind together. And they hold on to two handles kind of in front of them it's exactly like the scientology yeah i was really annoyed with myself because when i was recapping that episode when he gets accepted into the compound where the x-men mutants are hanging out and their leader is this woman named melanie bird where it's kind of unclear whether she has powers or not so far it seems like she doesn't but she's sort of the leader and 
he does this test with the handles but like i couldn't figure out what it was because i was like i've definitely seen this in the many many things i've read about cults and for some reason <laughs> i couldn't remember that it was the most obvious one which is scientology yes indeed but yeah they're living in this really isolated situation and some of them keep talking about how they're about to like fight a war and like obviously we know it's the kind of x-men human war probably but david like doesn't even ask what war that is and they're all like trying to control his mind so he could gain control of his powers and fight on their side and stuff they're like very culty very culty. But what's interesting about it is that they are all completely not trustworthy, like, in any way. They clearly yeah. are doing this out of self-interest, not out of genuine concern for his well-being. And the sort of, yeah, let's just let us walk around all your memories, it'll be totally fine thing is quite suspect. At the same time, he clearly does have serious issues in his past. Yeah. That really do need to be addressed. There's something going on there. And whenever they kind of get close to some kind of traumatic experience, he sort of freaks out and essentially throws them out of his mind, which is not something people can usually do, but he has this powerful ability, so he can do that. And it is such a sort of standard uh, therapeutic thing that, at the beginning of therapy, people are like, well, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. I and mean, then you kind of have to get over it. But because it's this weird situation where he's not really voluntarily engaging at all, it's sort of like, uh, I don't really like this so much. But as we sort of find out later in the show, he is this sort of dangerous presence beyond himself. It gets complicated. And then you start to think, okay, well... Who are you rooting for in a way that's quite interesting? Like, it's not really clear cut that he's just this virtuous man who happened to be yeah. attacked. I think you're probably already getting the accurate impression that it's very difficult to describe this show. Yes. Um, <laughs> because plot wise, so far, I mean, we're not going to spoil the later episodes in case people are catching up. Right now, we've seen up to episode five. But the basic idea is that he has gone from being in this mental institution to being in this compound with um, the X-Men characters and Melanie Bird, their leader. Um, and kind of one of the ongoing problems he has is that he has these really vivid hallucinations where one of them is this woman who was his friend in the mental institution who's played by Aubrey Plaza. So there's this character called Lenny, who's really great. And she's dressed in what for TV standards would be like a relatively masculine way in real life, it would be less noticeable, but like on TV it is. Um, and like she talks a lot about like, you know, finger banging girls and stuff. And she has this like really interesting style of dialogue that um, sounds basically like a really obnoxious middle aged man because the role was originally written for a middle aged man. And then they hired Aubrey Plaza and were like, this is more interesting. And it kind of plays into the character in a really interesting way that sort of develops later on. He hallucinates her as this sort of reverse Jiminy Cricket character who's like giving him terrible advice. And then there's this sort of obese demon character called the Yellow Eye Devil, who's this really disturbing non-verbal presence in the background that he will see. But then once he sees it, he forgets it. And whenever the other characters are in his mind, it's sort of like Inception, like it will look like a normal scene. But then he'll freak out and see the devil, but none of them can see it because it's his hallucination. So there's like really interesting stuff in like a couple of episodes in where his girlfriend who's the second main character turns out she can kind of see some of his hallucinations when she's there so she's the one that's getting let in whereas he doesn't really trust melanie or the other x-men characters so much um and then kind of there's there's other hallucinations like there's this one that's this sort of children's 
book illustration, like a horrifying illustration. Uh, Morgan's like making a face and Skype at me right now because we're both like absolutely <gasps> terrified of this. Like it's it's a really interesting kind of show tonally because the tones definitely don't feel like they're not working together. Like it works very smoothly, but some parts of it are genuinely full on horror. They're really scary yeah. in a very kind of atmospheric way. And other parts are, you know, it's it's kind of weird, surreal comedy. But the whole show in general is all just about therapy. So it's like, how did this get on air? It's just because it's the Fargo guy. <laughs> it literally is that it's the Fargo guy and that it's nominally an X-Men show. Yeah. I think he probably was like, I'm going to make an X-Men show. And FX was like, great. And then he brought this back and they were like, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> Fortunately, it's gotten great reviews, and I think people are watching. They just renewed it for a second season, so it's all going fine. <laughs> they have to make Noah Hawley happy. Um, but I think what I like so much about it is that it reminds me of the most pure cinema in that the experience of watching it is so much about just the images on screen and the effect that they're having on an almost unconscious level. Like there are just images and sometimes they will be, especially in the pilot, actually just images one after the other that almost sometimes don't even have anything to do with each other in a logical way, but that they're having an impact on you as a viewer on some level that has a really strong effect. So that um, character from the children's book, which is a book that his father read to him as a child, which is horrible. It's about a boy like killing his mother or something. I mean, it's not a book that anyone would ever read a child. Yeah, It's not um, a real book. <laughs> yeah. And the protagonist from this book has come to life and sort of running around in his head. And there's something about, this character who's kind of got this big oversized head, kind of like um, Michael Fassbender in that movie. Frank, <laughs> Frank yes. <laughs> More so. That is just upsetting on an uncanny level. There's just something wrong yeah. about it. And that kind of stuff, the show does really, really well. Just having these images that get to you either on that disturbing level or things that are quite, beautiful and sublime and i don't think the plot is actually that difficult to follow i think people especially the pilot which is really weird i mean the whole show is weird but i think people got quite overwhelmed by the fact that there's just so much happening visually and also the first episode is very non-linear yes and then that's not so much the case with the ones that follow but What's actually happening is fairly straightforward. It's just well, that... I was just thinking this, like in the latest episode, episode five. So we're now more than halfway through an eight episode series. And um, when I was writing my recap, I was just thinking, if you actually look at the individual plot elements of what happened, which, like I said, is like not actually that much, like because most of the plot is kind of character development and stuff to do with his therapy. It's honestly a storyline that you could have in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Because the primary antagonist that you're introduced to are this sort of menacing government agency led by this creepy agent guy who's trying to find the main character who's a confused white guy with superpowers that he doesn't know how to control and then he gets recruited by a bunch of perhaps untrustworthy superpowered people. And it's like, as a concept, that could be like the most generic show. Like it could be any sci-fi show practically. And it's like the execution is just so odd. In terms of the visual stuff as well, I find myself not looking for clues, which I think is quite a positive trait, right? Because um, especially in geek media, there's this obsession with sort of treating 
narratives as a puzzle box. So like a lot of filmmakers and TV writers do put in stuff that's foreshadowing like intentionally and there will be little Easter eggs and callbacks to the comic for the fans and that sort of thing. And I'm sure there are some details that are in the show where when you go back and watch an episode, you'll be like, oh, right, that's really interesting because it will come back later on in a different form. But it's not a show where you really feel the need to solve any kind of mystery because the mystery is so amorphous and it's more about the journey and like the progress of the way the character is kind of going back over and over again through his memories and like reinterpreting them and that sort of thing, Uh, which I really appreciate because I don't really buy into the idea of trying to solve clues in a TV show. Yeah, I don't think it's particularly satisfying. And it was funny, I saw some article the other day about the HBO show Big Little Lies with Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman, which is a technically a murder mystery, so like there is a mystery in it. But that's not really what the show is about at all. It's more about the dynamics between the characters. And I saw some article, I think it was on Vulture, being like, here are this, you know, seventeen ways this this mystery might play out. And I was like, I cannot <laughs> fathom clicking on this. Like, could not give less of a shit. I did not, not know there was even a murder in that. I thought it was just yeah. like it was just like a drama about like mums. No, it's a. It starts off with a murder, and then it's sort of like who who did it, which That's is kind of fucking thing has to be murder. <laughs> and it does kind of linger over the show, and it will be interesting to see what happens at the end. I think probably the last couple episodes will be more about that, but that's not what's interesting about it. And I think that the the tendency, especially with geek stuff, but with television in general, to solve everything. I find really tedious. And I think one of the things that is nice about this is that it is so deliberately designed to be like, you can fucking try, but you will not get anywhere. Like the, all, all the conversations I've seen on social media about Legion are just people posting memes being like, well, I don't understand what's happening. It's no, none of us does. It's really (laughs) stupid, right? I was so keen to start doing TV recaps at work this year. I was like, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm going to be a recapper now. I picked the worst possible show to recap. (laughs) Nothing happens in any episode. (laughs) Every single episode, it's like, wow, we've got this like really interesting visual subtext that I can't really describe. That's like to do with this schizophrenic character's problems. Like you can't, you can't recap that i'm an idiot (laughs) roll on american gods (laughs) yes well it is nice i think in the sort of peak tv boom to get something like this it made me think of the young pope a lot actually i was amazed at both of these things so removed (laughs) yeah and in fact one of the things that apparently he had the writers look at was paolo sorrentino's work which i thought was hilarious (laughs) not the Young Pope, obviously, because it wasn't out, but his earlier films. I don't think that this is anything like The Young Pope, but they're no, both such... No. They're just so clearly, like, a guy had an idea and said, we're going to do this thing, and it's going to be exactly the way that I want it to be. I mean, this had a full writer's room and stuff, which The Young Pope was all written by Carlos Sorrentino and directed by him. Um, so this is was executed more like a traditional television show, but it really feels like something came out of this one person's brain, and it's completely bizarre. And if we're going to have 500 scripted television shows a year, I feel like this is really the purpose of that. And it was fascinating to me because I watched the second season of Fargo while I was sick last week or the week before. And I'd never been interested in Fargo because I thought it looked bad. But I was like, well, Noah Hawley did this and this is amazing. So maybe 18. there is some- It got 18 Emmy nominations in its first season. <laughs> and I went back. So I skipped the first season because Fargo, the film, is one of the best American films ever made. I recommend it to anyone. And I was like, I don't need to watch a remake of that. But then the second season obviously was something different because they can't just remake Fargo every season. And 
all of my suspicions about Fargo, which were that it didn't look good and that it just looked sort of mindlessly violent, which the Coen Brothers films are not, uh, was correct. It was it was entertaining enough, it was fine, but it was not remarkable. I don't understand how this happened. Like I'm so amazed. What? <laughs> I've only seen one episode, so I can't judge. I've watched one episode and was like, this looks like man drama. And yeah. then I pieced out. Correct. This your assessment was accurate. But it really goes to show that people, when given complete free reign to do what they want, I mean, obviously not everyone, but sort of really talented people often will be like, yes, I'm finally going to make the thing that I've been dreaming about and for my also, whole life. Really interesting in that you kind of were like, Fargo is not super sexist, but reasonably sexist. And this show, while it, I wouldn't draw it out as like, here is a show that's exceptionally feminist or has exceptionally impressive female characters. It does have like, I mean, it's got like a 50-50 gender split in the cast, but also like the female characters, they're interesting and atypical, you know. The leader of the mutant separatist cult is this woman who's like 60, who's very severe and chic and in control and knowledgeable and enigmatic and is the leader of a cult which is like that's a lot that's a lot going on (laughs) and then you've got Aubrey Plaza's character who is very peculiar because like she's a dead person who's a hallucination and is maybe not a woman she's the most questionable I would say yeah I mean I uh, for the first few episodes I was like it's gonna be very easy for this character to flip over into like not manic pixie dream girl because she's not really a positive or desirable character but like because she's ostentatiously quirky because you've got this combination of her essentially kind of being a middle-aged man and also being this quite eccentric young woman he was like maybe friends with or maybe doesn't exist there's a lot going on and Aubrey Plaza I think the type of performance she does is I mean she plays like Aubrey Plaza characters you know yeah And this is, to a certain extent, an Aubrey Plaza character with, like, a kind of more complex, like, gender thing going on that is spoilers. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think it will really depend on how they execute that character in the last few episodes. Because at the beginning, she's a... I enjoy that character a lot, but she is kind of just, like, the crazy lady. Yeah, like, they're Um, in... Because in the first episode, they're friends in the mental hospital. And it reminded me a bit of... there's a scene in this show called Slings and Arrows which is one of my favourite TV shows of all time and it's about a theatre troupe and there's this really obnoxious young actress who has been hired to play Ophelia and she's like well I need to learn how to be mad so she's like I'm gonna smoke some weed because I think that's how you know how to be really crazy (laughs) and then she like does this performance where she's acting like as crazy as she can you know and whenever I see someone playing a quirky crazy chick on TV I always think of that character because it's such a pitch perfect parody of what I think is often like due to direction because it's like a really specific thing. But it's one of the issues with this show is because it's about mutants, it's kind of steering clear of being like going really in depth into like diagnoses and treatment and stuff. But also like you're in this mental hospital where the main character has a diagnosis, he's schizophrenic, he's taking medication and he's going to therapy. But then his friend, the Lenny character played by Aubrey Plaza, is like, she's a crazy lady. And it's like, that's not, a, that made me okay. But like, <laughs> that's, ugh. so there's, I mean, it's not, it's by no means flawless in terms of depictions of mental health, but yeah. Well, and also the, um, Angelica Bastian, an excellent writer, did a review of this for the Village Voice that we'll link to, mm-hmm. where she made the astute point that 
he basically has the diagnosis of schizophrenia in lieu of this, the fact that he has these powers. Yeah. Although then you kind of do get the sense in general, that, like he might be slightly nuts beyond this. And it's sort of unclear, but the suggestion of the show is very much, well, he's schizophrenic. Therefore he's crazy in a mental institution, like a full on mental institution where he hasn't left for five years. And that's not true of all people with schizophrenia. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little, it's, I mean, obviously it's a quite serious illness and there are people who have to be in, in places for a long time, but other people who, who deal much better and it's just not examined very well. It's like, they kind of just use that as the like, Oh, we're just going to stick that on top because yeah. it's an easy thing. And also because it's like the, it's so surreal, the mental hospital itself is just a surreal location, the way yeah. it looks and the way it's depicted and stuff. And also the fact that if it was the 1970s, it would obviously be like very different from the way yes. that it is. Cause like it, it seems kind of closer to what we think of as like a modern mental hospital with group therapy and that sort of thing. But even so it's highly fictionalized and stylized in a way that I think quite a lot of people would probably object to. Yeah, I think that there's a way to do that that would this kind of okay because it is such a sort of because the whole thing is so sort of I don't want to say false because the show isn't yeah. doesn't false, but I think that they probably could have just handled the whole thing slightly better. Although I don't have a huge I, that doesn't impinge my enjoyment of the show broadly speaking. Yeah. Um, the second most main female character, Sid played by Rachel Keller, I think is the most successful um, in the show. She's fantastic. And I was saying to you before we started recording that I really feel that this role and the clothing specifically designed for this character is really Noah Hawley apologizing to her for what he put her through in the second season of Fargo, where she plays the kind of teen daughter of one of the mobsters and is either naked or wearing incredibly revealing clothing for no real reason. And the writing also was appalling. And I was watching it and I just thought, what is happening? This is just awful. And in this, she plays uh, a mutant whose power is that if she touches someone else um, skin to skin, then they switch bodies. So she has to wear quite modest clothing to have as much of her skin covered at all times as possible. Uh, And David falls in love with her basically at first sight because they're both in the hospital together and they're kind of a couple for the rest of the show and it's quite like a strange romance because it kicks off so early in the show. Yeah, it's exactly the opposite of what you would expect. He literally, the first time they meet, says, do you want to be my girlfriend, I think, is the exact line. She goes... Yeah, okay. And I was like, what? (laughs) But it totally works. It's really well executed. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were like a couple of episodes, maybe episode two. I was really concerned that it was going to turn out that she was going to be like a honey trap for the cult where they'd sent her into the hospital to like bring him in because that's like a really popular cult indoctrination tactic. But I think that it is like a very pure um, romance between two nice people who've been fucked up by their weird mutant powers and now they're really screwed because they're being chased by government agents. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, a, a bad thing in his head, and which is also, also bad. Yeah, there's a scene in this most recent episode where she kind of discusses uh, experiencing her powers when she was relatively young that I thought was one of the best 
things I'd ever seen in kind of X-Men media. Oh god, me too. I loved that scene. Can we just talk about it? I think we can just talk about that yeah, scene. Yeah, we're spoiling yeah. it. Skip yeah, just skip like one minute if you really care about us yeah. talking about this one scene of spoilers. <laughs> yeah, she talks about... I can't remember, is it she switches place with her mother? Yes, when she was a teenager, her mom was a single mother and had various boyfriends. And he had she had this one boyfriend that the girl said was kind of interested in. So she switched into her mother's body and like had sex with her mom's boyfriend while disguised like as her mother. And th- But then there's like a time limit on the switch. So they switched back halfway through. So it was just this huge, really weird, big deal. And I was like, that is such interesting. And I think really plausible thing for like a fucked up teenager to do exploring your sexuality but like in a way that you shouldn't be doing and they kind of talk about it in the context of when you're unique there's no one you can come to for advice because it's not like you can be like oh i have mutant powers or anything like that it's such a weird thing to be able to do i mean that's implicitly the reason why she's in the hospital in the first place because she can't let anyone touch her and like she's really fucked up but she can't really discuss a lot of the particulars so yeah the great line is something like when you know when there's no one like you, how do you? Can't remember what exactly it is. It's about asking for advice. But there's the way that they phrased it was really beautiful, and I thought that that was a really great great way of using the X Men universe motif, whatever, as a way of talking about things that people experience, but not in a political way exactly which I thought was really nice because usually everyone talks about the X-Men as a political allegory for oppression, which it certainly is. But I think listening to that, plenty of people can identify with, I mean, even if you're not an incredibly strange or unusual person, although obviously there are people who are in various capacities, there's everyone has something that they couldn't ask someone for advice about. Right. And I, that, that scene was, I thought really powerful. And the way the show makes use of that kind of stuff and quite seriously addresses, well, what it would be like to actually have to live in the world as someone with one of these powers, as opposed to something like the X-Men movies, which are just a different kind of fantasy, which is fine. I mean, it would be, it would be awful. You would be really fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) Really, really bad. And I don't think any of the other sort of mainstream media adaptations have dealt with that. At all. I mean, I mean understandably, because up, I think but... <laughs> in the context of in the context of like a mainstream blockbuster movie, they are just gonna be more explicit about stuff. Like the first X Men movie does a pretty good job, but they also have to like explain the world. Whereas in this, there's no explanation and it's all very internal. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not complaining exactly. Certainly, yeah. some of the recent X Men movies have not been very good, uh, and they could do a better job. But they have a different brief. Like, yeah. They have to be reaching millions and millions of people whereas this show if it gets watched by two million great doing a good job that's fine renew it um as opposed to something like a major x-men film which has to make 500 million dollars in the u.s to have broken even right and that is the nice thing about television in this day and age is that it doesn't have to speak to everyone it can speak to a pretty niche audience and i think this show definitely has found that because certainly the people on Twitter are very excited about it. And if the Twitter people like you, then it's all, it's all good. Um, but yeah, I would certainly recommend it to 
everyone. I've really, really been enjoying it. I think it's fantastic. Dan Stevens is amazing in it. I was so pleased for him after his, you know, previous television struggles. Although he has had an incredible career post-dramatically quitting Downton Abbey. <laughs> I can't remember, like, the Assassin movie he did, but that was meant the to be guest. very good. But I yeah. mainly just know him from Downton Abbey. And it's really interesting to watch this as, like, my only other point of entry. I mean, I'm going to see him in... Uh, Beauty and the Beast tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, in Downton Abbey, he's playing... I don't want to say it's boring and that it's like boring to watch, but like the character is very simple and he's meant to be there as a nice, somewhat handsome aristocrat man who's the love interest. You know, like there's not much to do. No. Whereas this is such a peculiar role to be playing because there's like a certain structure from what you expect for the protagonist of a superhero show, even if it's one of the ones that's not like a really aggressive action hero or whatever. But he's so sort of non-traditional, like he's very childish and delicate and vulnerable and quite passive in some ways, and also very clueless. And a lot of it's to do with just the voice he uses. A lot of it is his body language. Yeah, it's a it's a really really good performance, and, and he gets really scary. Yeah, know? like because he's so kind of sweet most of the time. When like bad stuff happens and he gets scary, he's really scary. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of range to it and it is very physical and interesting in the sense that when he is violent it's not violence that he's committing with his body right because he's telekinetic so he has to convey the he has to convey that you should be afraid of him without him beating somebody up but it's actually more frightening because he's not doing that yeah because you've seen people get beaten up a million times yeah right whereas this is something stranger and more unsettling or just a look on his face when something is kind of off that will be be weird and creepy or conversely when he's in non-frightening mode and really just does seem like he doesn't know what's going on and should not be in this situation what was the song he was playing on his banjo it was rainbow connection he was playing rainbow connection on a banjo's past episode and crying in any other show that would be so dangerously twee right but they've somehow managed to show where someone is on the astral plane dressed in an all-white outfit playing rainbow connection on a banjo and it's like this is really menacing <laughs> right but but he's not menacing in that moment actually the situation is menacing situation is menacing he is crying because he's so scared but the whole thing is terrifying. I was like, what is happening? This is crazy. I think part of it's to do with like the way they frame the space during the frightening scenes because like yeah. they're really good at creating that aura of when you're scared that there is like a monster in the shadow in the corner of the room. Yeah. Um they're very good at that. There's there's well, a lot of like impressive kind of direction and cinematography going on in yeah, this show. Yeah, direction is incredible. Because he so much of it is him kind of seeing something just out of the corner of his eye because it is this thing that he doesn't remember. Yeah. Once he's seen it, that the direction does a very good job showing you the things so that you know what's going on, but mimicking that sense of like there's something that's just there that you don't, you're not quite seeing, which is very disturbing. Yeah, there are three episodes left. You should catch up, and it's coming back for another season. So we will get more of this crazy, fucked up story to the delight of me and Dan Stevens both. Next week, we'll be discussing another scary thing, which is Get Out, which is finally coming out in the United Kingdom. So we're a little late for U.S. viewers, but that's fine. We we do what we can. I have remained 
quite unspoiled for this. I, I have a few... I do not know anything. I probably know more than you then, because I've gotten a few little hints of something, but I mostly have remained unspoiled. Ava DuVernay tweeted something <gasps> that was kind of spoiled me, and I was like, Ava, you have betrayed me. I can't I was, believe she's done I, one bad thing in her life. I know! A single <laughs> bad thing. I was like, oof. But I'm really excited about it. Obviously, it's gotten an incredible response and has made something like $100 million at this point. Oh, my God. $4.5 million budget. So Jordan Peele's just going to be, like, sailing around in a solid gold boat. Yes. With uh, Chelsea Peretti and their new baby, which is amazing. Uh, many happy returns to the beautiful couple. Um, <laughs> yeah, so tune back in for that. I'm very excited to see that film. You should go see it also if you have not. But as always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. And you can otherwise find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.